good morning. Uh, ladies, thank you for that. That was, uh, that was gorgeous. Thank you. I'd like to invite you to follow along with me as I read the scripture this morning. It's out of the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. And after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. Just hang there in Mark 7 because that is where we're going to be studying today. I don't know if your ears have been burning the last few days. Uh, I've been in San Jose at the USMB National Conference and Convention and have been talking a lot about you. Uh, some of you by name. It's an easy way to connect. I just kind of name uh, somebody in my church, and there's somebody around related. And so um, we talk about all those connections, and it's fun, and uh, had a good time at my first one of those types of events. And, uh, and now I'm here, and I'm excited uh, to be here. Let me tell you a story. Um, growing up, the house we lived in was not tied into the city sewer. We didn't quite live in the country necessarily, but we didn't quite live in town either. Uh, and what that meant 
was that there was this section of the backyard that always was a little more lush than the rest of the property. Uh, it was, if you know what I mean, it was the area of the yard that my dad referred to as the lateral lines. Now, as a little kid, I really didn't know what that meant, the lateral lines. I just knew that there was this area in the yard that stayed a little softer and a little greener than the rest. And it just happened to be the area that sat between my house and my good friend Scott St. John's house. Scott was one of two boys my age who lived right behind me. And for the sake of you respecting me as your pastor, I hope that you never meet Scott St. John. Not because of him, but because of all the dirt and the stories he has on me. So anyway, one day, I'm probably eight, maybe nine years old, and I take off towards Scott's house, and I'm sprinting, because between the ages of about five and 12, a boy pretty much sprints everywhere he goes. He just runs as fast as he can. So I take off out the back door. It's a summer morning. Every summer morning, I would leave the house about 10 o'clock. I'd get up, make myself some cereal, watch Price is Right. I loved Price is Right. And then I would leave before my older sisters uh, would wake up and start bossing me around. So I'd get up, put my swimming trunks on. That's it. No shirt, no shoes, just swimming trunks. That was my wardrobe in the summer. And I was hauling it down to Scott's house. Well, anyway, I hit those lateral lines. And I remember that morning, they were a little softer than usual. And I don't know if it rained the night before, but I, I didn't expect the area to be quite so sloppy. Anyway, I tripped, and I fly forward, belly first, face first, into the thickest, wettest portion of the lateral lines. And it was that day I learned what the lateral lines actually were. It was where our family's waste was disposed, and I was covered in it, head to toe. I came back to the house. My sisters wouldn't let me in, so I did what any nine-year-old boy would do in a situation like that. I turned on the hose, and I tried my best to, to rinse off. My sister Amy, gracious as she is, brought me a bar of soap. And so I'm out there cleaning up. Ten minutes later, I was good to go, heading down to Scott's house. Same swimming trucks on, you know, didn't really miss a beat. No problem. But from that day on, I always went around the lateral lines. Always. Why? Because... You know, even an eight-year-old boy knows that human waste is pretty nasty and unclean, and it's best to just stay away from it. And this passage that was just read by Matt, you might be able to see how my story connects with Mark chapter 7. And in, and in this text, what we're going to talk about today is what it means to be unclean. And we're going to do it under two headings. First, a question about cleanliness. That's from the first 13 verses of this passage. And then second, a declaration about defilement, which is from the last 10 verses of the passage. So first, a question about cleanliness. As we arrive in chapter 7, the scene here has completely shifted away from a series of miracles that Jesus has been performing in chapter 6. It's shifted from the feeding of the 5,000 and from the walking on water and the healing of all that were being brought to Jesus to a scene where now the Lord is standing before a group of religious leaders. They're back. Men from Jerusalem. Scribes and Pharisees, the text calls them. And they have another question for Jesus. You see, Jesus' popularity 
is growing. The religious establishment is very interested in Jesus. They're hearing his teaching, they're witnessing his miracles, and they really need to figure out if he's on their team or not. They're pretty sure he's not. Chapter 3 says they've already been making plans to have him destroyed, but they remain curious. They have a certain agenda, and it would be really great to see if this miracle worker from Galilee would help them get along with their agenda. And so the best way to find out if he's on their team is to find out if he honors their traditions, if he values the things that they value. Because up to this point, it appears that Jesus does not value what they value. He's touched lepers. He's identified and eaten with tax collectors. He's violated their view of the Sabbath day. He's claimed to forgive people of their sins. Almost every facet of his ministry is in opposition to the ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees. So interestingly, the Son of God is completely out of step with those who claim to be closest to God. And so their their question is, In verse 5, the scribes and Pharisees ask, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? That's their question. And if you back up to verses 3 and 4, Mark parenthetically informs us of just exactly what the issues are. He explains to his readers what is meant by the tradition of the elders, which is... I think, clear proof that Mark's original audience was not Jewish. If the original audience were Jewish, they would not have needed this explanation. Mark is writing to Roman Christians, Gentiles in Rome. But anyway, the scribes and Pharisees need to know why Jesus and his disciples aren't concerned with being clean the way that they are concerned with being clean. And the answer to the question is actually embedded in the question. The question asks, again, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition? Stop right there. There's your answer. Notice they did not ask why the disciples didn't wash according to the word of God. This isn't about the word of God. This is about the tradition of God. The elders. And so, what's the tradition of the elders? We've talked about this before. The elders are their forefathers, the rabbis, the leaders who, for a couple of centuries, have been establishing traditions. And the purpose of these traditions was to build a fence around the 600 plus laws given by God to Israel. And the rationale was if we sort of fence the law with our own set of rules, and then do a good job of keeping our rules, then for sure we won't break God's rules. But generation after generation, fencing God's laws, constructing this hedge of traditions, what this did is the hedge around the law essentially replaced the law. You do that long enough, and what you end up with is something so far away from the Word of God you, you, you don't even acknowledge it anymore. Just consider the issue in this text. In the Old Testament, 
There is only one place where the law requires the people to wash their hands. Only one place. And it's if someone has, has, has touched or come in contact with a bodily discharge. Leviticus 15. And it makes sense. You go and touch something in that category, you wash your hands. Hopefully you do that today. If you don't, let's not shake hands. Okay? The traditions, however, once they were all compiled, they were compiled into first something called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah had 30 chapters alone on the cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing of pots and pans. 30 chapters. Because really, it wasn't about sanitation. It's about ceremonial cleansing and and purity. So it takes 30 chapters just to explain and lay out the cleansing of pots and pans. It contained one whole volume on the rinsing and the cleaning of your hands. And so... We move along, and what's discovered is that the Mishnah needed clarity. And so commentaries were written that explained the Mishnah. And those commentaries were called the Gemara. Gemara means complete. So you have the Mishnah, and then explaining the Mishnah, you have the Gemara. And the rabbinical school at Jerusalem, they took the Mishnah and the Gemara, and they put them together, and they came up with the Talmud. You heard that word, the Talmud? A massive compilation of the traditions and the commentary that explained those traditions. And this is why Jesus said to the religious leaders, you bind heavy burdens on people that they can't even carry them. He doesn't say that here, but he says that elsewhere. It makes one ask, well, well, how devoted to these traditions were they? Well, the Jerusalem Talmud, and I quote, says this, It says, the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It says, it is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hallel than the words of the scripture. It says one other place, my son, attend to the words of the scribe more than the words of the law. So now you know what the story is. By the time you get to Jesus, the religious establishment is so totally caught up in the traditions of the elders, this rigid binding system of rituals to make you clean. They don't really recognize the Word of God anymore. So what then is Jesus' answer to their question about the tradition of the elders? Well, he doesn't really answer. Rather, he uses an Old Testament prophet, and he uses this prophet to deliver a just striking blow of condemnation. That's how he answers. Look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That phrase is used by Jeremiah as well. And that is the issue, the whole issue of religion. If it's all about the ceremonial and the ritual, if it's all about the behavior and not about the heart, then it's not what honors God. In vain, the text says, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So with his answer, Christ didn't deny breaking their tradition. No, 
he broke it. He broke it without regard for it. He had no respect for their whole traditional system. He ignored it. He swept it aside. It was meaningless to him. It was damning. In the mind of the Lord, what the disciples were doing was not a problem at all. But what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing was a big problem. They were actually going to go to hell with really clean hands. Jesus answers their question with a prophetic condemnation. Then he goes ahead and gives them an example of their hypocrisy. And I like how Mark records Jesus' words somewhat sarcastically here. (laughs) He says, you have a fine way. He's saying these are Jesus' words. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Underline your. Your tradition. This is yours. This is not God's, but yours. So Jesus sarcastically commends them. You have a fine way of making your tradition more important than God's word. Jesus saying, it's really impressive. You're actually really good at this. And then verse 10, Jesus gives an illustration of how they do this. He says, for Moses said, notice Jesus goes to Scripture. He always goes to Scripture. If you're going to push back on Jesus, you're going to have to push back on Scripture. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother... And he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. That's right out of Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. One of the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't have to tell you what honor means. To honor was to respect, to admire, to obey. And here's the key. It means to support, to meet their needs, to take care of them. You don't stop honoring parents once you leave the house As they age and now need your care, you honor them by supporting them, by taking care of them, by providing for them. This was in the very fabric of the Ten Commandments. This is a very clear Old Testament principle. Verse 11. But you say, Jesus speaking, if a man says to his father or his mother... You say, oh, whatever I had that would help you is Corban. That is to say, given to God. Again, Mark is explaining this this Jewish traditional system to to his Gentile readers. And you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So Jesus is condemning the scribes, not just for violating a commandment, but for establishing a tradition that actually gives them an excuse to violate it. That's how hard-hearted these scribes and Pharisees were. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Mom and Dad. I I know you're out of money and and you're not well, but I, I can't support you. I dedicated all I have to God. Nothing better than giving to God. You're the one that taught me that, right? These men use a man-made tradition as a way to violate the clear teaching of God's law. This is why we must always sift our traditions through Scripture and not vice versa. We cannot let tradition stand over the clear teaching of Scripture. 
You just can't. So then in verse 13, we have the summation of all Jesus said in his answer to the scribes. He says this. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition. What an indictment that is. You invalidate the word of God. You dismiss the word of God. You disregard the word. Meaning, if this is what the scribes are doing, they are propagating something that is just thoroughly unbiblical, thoroughly ungodly. And that leads us into the second half of the passage, the second half of your outline. Similar theme, but even deeper teaching. And to give this richer teaching, Jesus pulls the people away from the questioning Pharisees. And he delivers to them a very simple illustration. Very simple. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Pretty simple, right? Well, the disciples are a little dense, so they ask for more on this, and Jesus explains what is obvious, which is this. He's not just making a statement about eating food and then what happens once you eat the food. What he's saying is sin is not what happens to you. Sin, and let me say that maybe with a little different inflection. Sin is not what happens to you. Defilement is not what you bump into or get on your hands. Sin does not come into you from the outside. What he's saying is, sin is in you. And because it's in you, it's what comes out of you. And he even gives them a list of what that looks like. So a question. What's really wrong with the world? Is it this list of things that he gives? What's really wrong with the world? Why is there so much strife between nations and races? Why do relationships, which, why do they fray and, and, and fall apart? Why is pain and, and heartache, heartache so reoccurring in our lives? What is, what is wrong with this place as we look around? Jesus' answer, we, we are what's wrong. We are what's wrong with this place. Reminds me of writer G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton was the most popular columnist, maybe in the Western world at the time that he was living. The London Times once sent out an inquiry to a a wide range of, of famous authors asking the question I just raised, asking, what's wrong with the world today? It was around the time of World War I. What's wrong with the world today? And Chesterton's response was profound. Very, very short, but profound. He wrote, Dear Sir, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton says, the problem is not out there, it's, it's in here. It's what comes out from in here. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's sin. That's the problem. Another author, this one Russian, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, He says, the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. The Bible makes this clear. The world is not divided into good guys and bad guys. No, the teaching of Scripture is that we're all bad guys. 
We all have a part in what makes this world a miserable and unclean place. And deep down, every one of us knows this, don't we? We know it. We know we're unclean, which is why we try to address the sense of uncleanness ourselves. From the outside in, we go about trying to make ourselves clean, trying to justify ourselves, trying to do something that Jesus says is impossible. All sorts of ways this is attempted. We don't, we don't do it with ceremonial washings anymore so much. But we do try religion. We say, if I really commit myself to religion, if I stay away from bad movies and profane activities and bad people, if I really try to be good and perform the right rituals and pray the right prayers, then God will see that I'm worthy and he'll come in and he'll, he'll heal my heart and he'll make me clean. The problem is, when you put serious effort into religion, the heart never feels any real change. It never feels clean. There's no joy. There's just anxiety because you never know if you're really doing enough to make the cut. Religion doesn't work. It, it, it tries to clean from the outside in. People try politics. They say politics will solve the social structures that undergird all of our problems. So it's not people that are bad. It's not sin. It's the systems and the policies that need to change. Those are the things that defile us. A lady named Dorothy Sayers in her book Creed or Chaos, she said that politics has been elevated to the point that what is wrong with society, according to politics, is not the human heart, but it lays in the social structures, in the lack of education, in the lack of applying what we know through science. If we could just fiddle in those gaps human society would, would then achieve greatness. But Sayers would say, modern history is littered with disillusioned people who thought capitalism will make us better or socialism will make us better. Problem is, the sins of the human heart don't go away in those systems. They just express themselves differently. Politics is outside in. And on and on again I could go, finding someone to love you, establishing a higher income, achieving a certain level of success, being thin and beautiful, doing ministry that people appreciate, preaching sermons and getting praise, all sorts of ways, twisted ways that we deal with the stains that are on our lives. But you know what? None of it makes us clean which leads to a very important editorial comment that we have here in the text. Mark says, parenthetically, verse 19, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That's a crucial part of this teaching. What does it mean? What does it mean that he declared all foods clean? clean. What it doesn't mean is that Jesus went in and just rearranged the categories. He didn't say, okay, shellfish used to be over here in the unclean column. I'm going to move it over here in the clean column. Or this item in the unclean column was condemned in the Old Testament. I'm changing God's word to say that it's clean now, so go ahead, enjoy. No. It's not how Jesus works. Jesus upholds God's word. He doesn't seek to change it or, or, or tear it down. So he's not saying all the laws about cleanliness are now disregarded. Rather, 
He's saying all the laws of God are fulfilled. Fulfilled. He's clarifying the purpose of the law, which is not to purify you, but to point you toward your need for spiritual purification. And so Jesus is saying that need for purification has been carried out and accomplished. That's his declaration. All the ways the law is showing you how dirty you are, I'm actually making you clean. That's what Jesus is saying, and that is an incredible thing to say. How could it be? How could it be that he could do this? Go again to the Old Testament prophets. Zechariah chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you, but you might write it down. Look it up later. See where Jesus' idea of inside-out cleansing might come from. The first line of Zechariah 3, we have the prophet Zechariah being transported by way of a vision into the center of the temple. He records his vision like this. He says, Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So as you may know, the temple had three basic parts. The outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. And only one person on one day of the year was allowed to go into the holy of holies, the high priest on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur. So Zechariah was getting this vision from the center of the temple, inside the holy of holies, and he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord on the day of atonement. And for the high priest, there was an enormous amount of preparation that led up to the Day of Atonement. A week ahead of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would be put into seclusion. He'd be taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? Well, so he wouldn't touch anything or anyone unclean. So he wouldn't eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he would spend those days washing his physical body and preparing his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he wouldn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's Word as a way to further purify himself. Then on the Day of Atonement, he bathed again, head to toe, dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer an animal sacrifice to God to atone, to pay penalty for his own sins. But he wasn't finished. After that, he would come out. He would bathe completely again. He would put on new white linen, and he would go back into the Holy of Holies. This time, he would make another sacrifice. This one would be for the sins of the priests. But he wasn't finished. He would come out a third time, and he would bathe again from head to toe, dressing again in brand new linen, went into the Holy of Holies, this time making a sacrifice that would atone for the sins of all the people. And maybe you know this, but all this work in the temple was done in public, meaning the temple would be crowded, and those in attendance would watch, maybe from a bit of a distance, but they would watch the high priest very closely. There was a thin screen that, that, he would, that he would wash and dress behind. 
But the people were there, present. They saw him bathe. They saw him dress. They saw him go in and come back out. He was their representative before God, and they were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and in an undefiled way. It was very important that when the high priest went in and he goes before God in the Holy of Holies, that there wasn't a speck of defilement on him. He had to be as pure and unstained as he could be. So if you understand that, you realize why the next lines of the prophecy in Zechariah 3 are so shocking. Zechariah has this vision of the high priest Joshua. He's standing in the Holy of Holies. He's doing his work before the presence of the Lord. But then in his vision, Zechariah sees that Joshua's garments are covered in excrement. The high priest doing his work before the Lord is absolutely defiled and unclean. And Zechariah can't believe it. He can't believe it. What does this mean? The vision means this. God is giving Zechariah a vision so that he could see man the way God sees man. That in spite of all our best efforts to be pure, to be good, to be moral, to cleanse ourselves and make ourselves right before God, God sees our hearts and our hearts are covered with filth of the worst kind. All of our morality, all of our good works, they don't cleanse the heart. And so Zechariah is being shown quite graphically that no matter what we're doing, no matter what we do, we are not fit for the presence of God. And just as he is cast into despair at this vision, he hears these words, take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, capital B, branch, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Zechariah must have thought, wait, wait a minute, for years we've been doing these sacrifices, we've been obeying these cleanliness laws. What do you mean remove this sin? God was saying, Zechariah, this is a prophecy. Someday the sacrifices will be over. The cleanliness laws will be fulfilled. Everything will be declared clean. So connect the dots. Centuries later, another Joshua shows up. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It's the same name in Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew. Another Joshua showed up, and he stages his own day of atonement one week before he begins to prepare. The night before, he doesn't go to sleep. Instead of watching in appreciation of what he's doing, nearly everyone Jesus loved would betray and abandon and deny him. And when sacrificed before God, wearing the defilement and the filth of sinners like you and me, the Father forsook him, pouring out the fullness of his wrath against him, against the sin and the defilement that wasn't his, but was ours. 
pastor, author Tim Keller says of this, this contrast. He says, instead of being clothed in rich linen garments, Jesus was stripped of the only garment he had. He was beaten. And he was killed naked. He was bathed, too, in human spit and then his own blood. So what then took place on this day of atonement that would be established by our great high priest, by Jesus himself? Here's what happened, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might know the righteousness, you might import cleanliness of God in him. God clothed Jesus in our sin. He took our penalty, our punishment, so that we, like Joshua, can get what Revelation 19, 7 through 8 pictures when it says, let us rejoice and be glad. Fine linen, bright and clean, is given to us to wear. That's our eternal garment, pure linen, perfectly clean, without stain or blemish, given to us through Jesus Christ at infinite cost to himself. Cost him his blood, and his blood is the only thing that can deal with the defilement in your heart. That's how bad your defilement is, but that's how much God loves you and the lengths that he has gone to to deal with it. And that's how he declares all things clean. He would do the purifying work. The work not of reclassification, but of redemption. Why didn't the disciples wash? Well, it wasn't in God's word. But it was also because they would be washed in the blood of Jesus. Folks, be done with your outside-in cleaning. You're doing, 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 doing. It doesn't work. You can't make yourself clean. You can't get rid of the defilement from the outside. No amount of effort will get you there. No amount of seclusion or separation will accomplish it. Listen to the hymn writer. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. You need cleanliness, you need wholeness, you need to get rid of this understanding that you know you have, though you suppress it almost all the time, that you are dirty and you are defiled and there is something wrong there's only one answer. There's only, there's only one solution, and, it, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses us. It's not a ceremony. It's not a ritual. It's our Savior. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in just confession today, and our confession before you is that we think we can manage sin. We, we, we think we can get by. We, we think that maybe we're not really all that dirty, that there are others worse, or that we don't really have that big a problem with it, or maybe it's just a hang-up and, and we'll get through it. 
But God, without the shed blood of Jesus, without trusting and believing and putting our, our, all of our hope in Christ, we don't stand clean before you. We can't get clean in front of you. And so God, I pray that all of us today, afresh in our church family, we would look to Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, our expiating, cleansing Savior that blots out all of our transgressions, that makes us a clean people. Lord, we, we thank you for Christ. We worship in, in light of who he is and what he's done at the cross for us. We acknowledge our need of him. If there's anyone here that has not put their faith in him, maybe they're coming to realize their desperate need for cleansing. Lord, I pray that they would do that today. They would seek someone out, a friend, a family member, someone in the row next to them, one of the pastors here at the church. God, they would just seek someone and they would walk out of here feeling clean for the first time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and what you've recorded of his life as he lived here amongst us. May you continue to enrich our hearts and our church family as we study uh, this book of Mark. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.